So in um, about 24 hours that we've been here, and in the days to come, we're giving this very consistent attention, or we're endeavouring to give a consistent attention um, to this um, elusive experience of being here in our bodies. Elusive because uh, we're quite skilled, we're quite sophisticated in our psychology at uh, creating all kinds of imaginary scenarios. We're quite sophisticated at abstracting our attention. And of course that's a fantastic skill. And it's maybe important to underline that in giving all this attention to body, it's not in any way to be dismissive of the importance of our capacity to conceive, to imagine, to pursue the different things that seem important in life. And yet we also see that we can be so seduced by that capacity, so subduced by our creations and imaginings that uh, we overlook the importance, the relevance, the depth, the liberating potential of actually learning, actually evolving, I would say, our consciousness beyond the capacity of abstraction, uh, for abstraction to a capacity to actually stay in the heart of our experience. So that rather than being fixated on the creations of awareness, we're able to stay enough to understand something fundamental about the fact of being aware, the fact of our human existence. And as we've said, this human existence happens right here. There's no experience other than body. <coughs> Incidentally, if that doesn't seem clear to you, or if you just clearly disagree and you feel like, no, what? What about this experience? If you feel you've had, to, if you feel at any point that uh, you, you, I'm wrong, or that you've got some good counter argument, please feel free to speak up. So, all experience is bodily experience. Therefore, the emphasis on body, therefore, the, uh, this consistent attention we're giving, therefore, this uh, opportunity, this aspiration to live, this possibility of living increasingly freely within the body of our experience, within the body of life, within this, uh, this field of everything that arises in our experience. And so I was, in reflecting on that just this afternoon, I was thinking about the different w kinds of relationship to body that 
that get in the way of us fully and fluidly and freely inhabiting the body of experience. And so I thought uh, to try and uh, describe or categorize them a bit is what we might call the biological relationship to the body. Right? The fact that we are, we are a product of human biology. And I'll explain a little what I mean more about that. That's what I would like to go into this afternoon. And as well, there's the psychological relationship to body. Right? The ways in which psychologically the, 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 we've taken ourselves to be this one. And there are various stories and histories about who and how this one is. And the ways our psychological history and the shaping of, our, of my story, whoever the me is. Right? The bit that feels very personal. And then there's also what we might call the existential relationship to body, right? which is the basic fundamental tendency to see body as a thing, to be self as uh, a kind of self-contained object, the one that's over here, looking at a world that's over there. So over the days, uh, in these afternoon talks, maybe... I say maybe because we'll also just see what happens during the days, right? And what stands out for you. And so this afternoon time of reflections and teachings will follow that a little bit. But my sense is that maybe over these days to unpack a little these different uh, types of relationship to body. So this afternoon we'll look a little bit at the, what we might call the biological relationship. So, just by, you know, by being this product of evolution called human being, there's a certain biological workings of body, right? We're, to some extent, prisoners, we might say, of our biology. We didn't decide or organize anything to find ourselves like this. It just seems to happen, right? It's interesting. We can't recall the beginning of it. Right? You might have a story about the beginning of it, but you can't recall. Can you remember the beginnings of being human? Right? We just find ourselves here. We can't organize how it unfolds particularly, biologically. We're not in control of our health. We're not in control of our longevity. Not in control of our death. And I think that's actually an important, helpful reflection because we can get very tight around our biology. We can get quite tight trying to impose the illusion of control on our biology. And it's rather a humbling reflection. And actually as we go through life and as we age and as we're confronted from time to time by uh, ill health or as we're confronted by the loss of those we love through death, we're confronted by the, the limitations of our biology. We're confronted by that, that humbling effect that, oh, I'm not, I'm not in control. Right? This is a human life I'm living. Human life has certain uh, uh, attributes that I can't escape. 
And our, our scientific paradigm tells us this human life has evolved and that uh, to be in a human biology is a sort of layer on top of a basic mammal biology, which is a layer on top of a basic reptilian biology. And so a human biology is, has human drives. Main drives, sex drive, survival drive, social drive. And it tends to be that we more or less primarily, I mean, we're all governed by all of it, governed by, we all experience the potency of all of those drives. And you may find that you tend to be more uh, seduced by, more engaged with one than the other. For some of it's, it's the sexual drive is the strongest. And what tends to be, uh, what we tend to get most uh, obsessed by, caught up in, is about the one. And uh, the kind of intense one-to-one relationships, intimate relationships, sexual relationship, seems to be the, the, the biggest thing that looms for us in life. And for others of us, the, the survival drive or we might say security drive, right? tends to be primary. The attempt to make things feel safe, for me to feel secure, and all the different ways that we may go about that, which well, I'll maybe unpack some of during the talk. And for others of us, it's more the social drive, right? the sense of how we present to the world the networkers among us, right? that are, uh, the, get most primarily engaged with how, uh, how I am in the world, how the world sees me, the kind of neurotic version of that, what, are they, what do they think of me, etc. And it may be clear to you which one of those is primary, either already or just in hearing me say those things, it may be a, a useful reflection. In retreat, of course, in a way, the whole way we could look at the container of retreat is as a regulating environment for those three drives. Right? That's what, what retreat does, is it regulates the sex drive. I mean, it doesn't regulate whether the drive appears or not, but it regulates the acting out of it. Right? And there are certain through what we referred to yesterday as the kind and gentle leaving each other alone. <laughs> the survival drive is very much regulated by retreat. We don't get to follow all the impulses that might normally arise to, uh, you know, to go to the fridge or, or whatever it is. You know, the, li the little things that... that maybe what might fire many times a day in consciousness that send us to some little uh, attempt at to get cosy, to get comfortable, to eat chocolate, to do whatever our, our thing is, to feel safe, secure. 
So we don't get to feed those drives in retreat. Our basic biological needs are really well taken care of, especially now the heating's back on. Right. So we're, we're basically, we're fed, we're looked after, we're cared for, we're sheltered, we're nourished. Fantastic. Basic human biology has got really great circumstances here. But also through that regulation, it's a chance for us to really see the way these drives, these powerful, elemental, human, biological drives arise. And it's a chance particularly to see them arise because of the regulating atmosphere that we don't get to just follow them. Similarly, the social drive. And the way we can easily avoid some discomfort avoid some anxiety where we can basically avoid ourselves through the social stuff through the ways we uh, we we just you know through those basic drives are often ways of just moving away from ourselves moving away from something that may be uncomfortable or challenging so here we are sitting in this body with its it's biology just firing off by itself, right? And those drives, they just, you know, they just fire by themselves. They're, they're part of being human. They're biologically designed since many, 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 many generations. And, you know, pre-human through whatever that reptilian and mammalian evolution was, right? If those drives hadn't been there, the drive to, the sex drive, to reproduce, the survival drive to eat and feed and survive, the social drive to actually to interact with others of the same species, to manage. If those drives hadn't been in place, we wouldn't have got here. And sometimes, in the kind of regulated atmosphere of a retreat, and in the sometimes regulatory or prescriptive environment of various religious and spiritual traditions, we can easily get the impression that the goal is somehow to do away with those drives or to transcend those drives. You don't, we don't get to transcend our biology. What, what would that be? So that's good news, if it, to paraphrase Obama from last week. No, you missed, <laughs> you missed that. Okay. <laughs> Right, that's good news. We're not trying to do away with or transcend those drives. Even though we may find that we, at times, we, we, we wish we could, or we find that we're trying to suppress those drives because they're powerful. I mean, so if we, if we just open them up, will you take the sex drive? Where to start, right, with how the way is that powerful. I mean, if we look at how much of our time and energy and attention is, and the thing, and activities are born out of that, all the ways in which we present and show up and the ways we dress and the, and the, the, the care we take with how we look and the, then the, all the um, reflection about whether that's good enough or not good enough, etc., 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 the, the hunger and longing that go that born out of the sex drive, 
the music and poetry and creativity born out of the sex drive. The, the fear and anxiety born out of the sex drive. The cruelty and abuse and uh, power dynamics born out of the sex drive. So a lot of the, the beauty and intimacy and connection and love born out of the sex drive. It's like there's a whacking great chunk of human experience in there. And for most people, the sex drive is firing more or less blindly. Or at least it's firing, and the ways we act it out are more or less just reactive. So... A practice like Gibbis gives us the opportunity to shine the light of awareness on the sex drive. To get to know it, how it shows up, what we can do with it to be skillful, how we can inhabit it fluidly, freely. In the regulated environment of a retreat, the, the sex drive can show up with all kinds of lurid fantasies. And you probably haven't been here long enough yet for too much lurid fantasy, although, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> right? Actually, some of you are on extended personal retreat here, so you've probably had plenty of time. And the intensity that that can have, and the detail that that can have, and the, uh, the heat and the longing that that can have, the compulsion that that can have, the whole fantasy we can have about somebody else in the hall that we've never spoken to or uh, don't know anything about, but we've designed this extraordinary life together that we're going to have, or whatever. And, you know, you may laugh, but those of you who have been on a few retreats, and especially those of you who have been on long retreats, you know what it's like. It has a name even. It's called the, the Vipassana Romance. <laughs> the tendency to just isolate somebody from the room and, and build a whole fantasy life there. So what do, you do? what do we do? Right? If you just go with that fantasy after a while, compelling and exciting though it is, it becomes just exhausting and uh, painful actually because so much energy is going into something that, uh, uh, that's, that's really just, uh, uh, just happening in this fantasy realm. And yet there's something important, right? Like we say, we, don't, we can't shut off these drives and we're not trying to transcend them. But there's something important that we can attend to in our practice, that we can attend to in this body. Right? The, the a huge amount of energy that's there in the sex drive. The sensual and sensory aliveness 
Eroticism is a beautiful thing. But we're asked, like with the rest of our practice, like we've been exploring, to let go of the abstraction, the scenario, the story, the object, her or him, and to actually come back to body, body's expression of that, the heat, the dynamism, the longing. How does it play out in your body? Right, that sensual aliveness. If you don't let it just get um, lost in the object. We might find there's something, re- something both really enlivening. It wakes you up when you're horny. Right? Oh, you don't nod off in the middle of that. No, right, right here. So there's one thing that we can notice. You let yourself feel the movement of that. It's enlivening. It's also, it, it kind of brings what, you to your senses. That movement of eroticism. Ah, oh, there's, there's a sensitivity to touch, to taste. The touch of life. If we can actually open our senses to that, we find this kind of sensual, intimate relationship with life. A sensuality, an erotic charge that actually can be attuned just as much to the sound of birdsong, the dew on the grass, the movement of breath. What we love that's born of the sex drive is that, that kind of, that intimacy with another that speaks to us of intimacy in general, a sensory, sensual intimacy with life. A way that we might discover that in some way, actually, all of life is sex. All of life interpenetrates. All of life, in that lovely expression Thich Nhat Hanh uses, inter-is. There's a way in which we are profoundly intimate with sky and earth and nature and each other. Intimate with body and heart and mind and world. There's a way in which we're invited to take that in. In a way that actually is expressed in the sex drive when we can attune to it, attune to its aliveness, attune to its longing, attune to its fecundity. And all of that's happening. All of that plays out in this bodily existence. All of that becomes increasingly available, increasingly refined, increasingly potent. As we're able to manage, maybe manage isn't the right word, as we're able to recognize this aspect of our human biology and to leave alone some of the dramas that we play out. And in this regulated atmosphere of retreat, that's a great place for that. Because there is not going to be any playing out. So leave alone 
whatever ways it might play out. And let, let yourself feel whatever charge, whatever longing, whatever uh, upsurge, whatever uh, heat may arise. And it may arise as some kind of sexual fantasy, some desire for somebody here or not here. Or it may arise as some other form of longing. It may arise just in the longing of your practice. Oh, I, I wish I could have such and such an experience. Letting the longing be felt. Longing of the heart. The longing for intimacy. The longing for connection. And then survival drive again takes up a lot of our energy in life and, uh, particularly for those of us for whom that may be a primary drive right, the attempt to be to feel okay the attempt to be safe the attempt to have things just right and whether that plays out in how you are around your home or your possessions or uh, the, your comfort in some way. Now it's interesting. The whole of the whole of kind of our sort of consumer culture is basically a way of endlessly playing out these different drives. Consumer culture offers us endless tantalizing ways to be more sexy, be more comfortable, right? and be more kind of generally kind of witty and uh, socially great. Right? That's what advertising is. Advertising is just waving at these three primary drives and activating that kind of pre-human reptilian response that, uh, that just only knows sex, survival, and uh, social. And then in within... Um, just within a retreat, in this regulated environment, you can see that survival drive playing out in different ways. The, ang the anxiety that ari might arise in the food queue. Is there going to be enough for me? The anxiety that arises around my needs, my sleep patterns, my this or that, all the things that you write notes to the coordinators about. Coordinators are just field the survival drive <laughs> on little pieces of paper. The way that can play out, you know, just within the course of one meditation, when there's some discomfort, you know, and then, oh, am I going to be all right? How long till the bell rings? You know, just all the the anxiety of that. That. You know, basic, very basic biological fight or flight or freeze response. Right? What we do in the face of that which feels uncomfortable. Right? That's what happens. It's biological. We, we'd not, we don't need to stop it happening and we don't need to transcend it. But we're invited, our practice, this embodied practice invites us to explore it, get to know it. so that we can actually live fully, fluidly, and freely within it, within this biological life. 
You know, so even though we call, might call that the survival drive, you know, in our, in our um, sort of this material culture that we find ourselves in, it's mostly, probably, for most of us, most of the time, more a security drive than a survival drive. I don't know your particular circumstances, right? but for many people on this planet, the survival drive is a question of survival. It's a question of actually having enough to eat today, or actually having uh, enough uh, shelter or warmth, clothing, etc. But of course, it doesn't really, the, the level, however much one addresses those needs, the addressing the needs outwardly doesn't do anything to change the drive. In fact, the more we just try to take care of all those needs externally, the more neurotic they tend to become. You notice that with retreat centers. Right? I taught retreats in lovely, comfortable places like Gaia House. And the more comfortable the place is, and the more uh, one's needs are taken care of, and the more uh, you know, very lovely care there is from the staff to want to respond to people's different sort of dietary uh, preferences and temperature preferences and room preferences and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The more the more needs one tries to take care of, the more needs just keep coming. I've also taught retreats in lamentably crappy places <laughs> where it's just clear when you walk in that you know, only the most basic needs are going to be taken care of. And then people write very few notes on those retreats. Right? <laughs> they just kind of give up. They see there's no, po there's no <laughs> chance to be very comfortable. And the fruits of attending to that, of getting to know our, our, our anxiety, our tendency to fuss over a lot of uh, the bits and pieces, the getting to know the basic, that it's a basic drive. We want to be comfortable. And the, the, the willingness to hang out with a certain amount of discomfort, to sit in meditation while sensations and uh, uncomfortable sensations arise and endure and pass away again. And actually it uh, forges a certain capacity. It enlarges one's comfort zone. Which we actually might call it enlarges one's freedom zone. One's capacity to abide freely, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, whether one is comfortable or not. It's a great freedom in life to learn to be okay being uncomfortable. There's, uh, I don't know if you've read Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. It's a very long time since I've read it, probably 25 years or so. But there's this beautiful line in, in that book which struck me very much when I first read it. When Siddhartha has been doing all these ascetic yogic practices and then he gives that up and goes to the town and looks for a job. And he's asked uh, what his skills are. And he says, I can sit, I can fast, and I can wait. That's fantastic. Right? That's, that's to abide freely in the midst of the survival drive. Right? Well, I'd, I'd like to be comfortable. But I can sit, 
I can fast and I can wait. I can attune to conditions as they are and not fuss and freak out about them. It's the invitation of this practice of living freely in embodied existence. And then the social drive. The all the effort that goes into uh, how we posture and present, the anxiety about what the world thinks of me, the uh, trying to, uh, to get it right, that funny expression, to keep up with the Joneses, and you know that, to keep up with the Joneses, or whatever one's version of that is, to keep up with the yogis. And again, one can see that playing out in, in retreat. Right? When, you, when you move position, maybe, or when you sneeze, and then the sense sometimes that can be there of, oh, I'm being so noisy, everybody must think I'm so... Like the attempt to somehow be loved, cherished by the community, by the world. And all the anxiety, the, the, the fear that that can engender, and all the attempts, as if, as if, we could find some kind of uh, a resting place where everybody just loved us and thought we were great, and then I'll be able to relax. Fat chance. And again, the invitation for us to actually just to see that playing out, to notice that projection, to notice that exteriorizing of authority, right? And put the authority for my well-being, for how I am, out there on this imagined sort of panel of judge and jury called the rest of the world, or called my neighbors, or my colleagues, or uh, uh, the, the people in whatever social setting it is. Right? And we try and we project whatever we think their view of us might be, and then we try to conform to some view that will make, make oneself okay in the eyes of, etc., etc. That's an uncomfortable way to live in the world. And yet, as we get used to that, as we, as we inhabit our experience, as we notice that drive sort of firing off, as we see that movement of social anxiety arise, as we learn to leave alone that projection, as we learn to recognize it as a projection and just to treat it no differently than any other thought, just letting it pass through and be left alone. Establish a certain kind of dignity a certain kind of self-containment. I'm not sure if that's quite the right word. Not a containment as in a limitation, but a certain uh, kind of giving the authority of our experience to what's actually happening. Rather than giving that authority to all our myriad projections. 
there's a I don't remember who said it, but I, I think it was uh, the advice of a Zen master that I read again many, many, many years ago. But the advice was, when in company, to act as if one was alone. And when alone, to act as if one was in the presence of an honored guest. And I, again, like that, uh, the previous example I gave from Siddhartha, I remember being very touched by that, even though it's a, it's a long time since I read it, and it just it came to me this afternoon in, in reflecting on this talk. That it really speaks to a freedom from the social drive. To be in company as if alone, right? free from the need to impress and present and posture, free from the anxiety and projection about what they think about me. And to be alone as if in the presence of an honored guest, right? attentive, attuned, taking care with what one's doing. So here we sit, friends, in these bodies, in this biology, with these drives, Sexual, survival, social, with our uh, human apparatus, our human organism doing its thing. And a very little bit of this human doing its thing bit is in our control. A very little bit. We can sort of decide to sit here or to sit there. To have a bit more or a bit less for lunch. But the vast majority, what's essential, what's the, 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 the great themes of our human life are largely outside of our control. What we think, how we feel, how long we live, these things happen by themselves, or at least they happen just in response to the limitless causes of conditions of life and how it's unfolding. We don't get to choose really much of the content or, or the context of our lives. But we can train ourselves in the art of responding to our lives. We don't need to suppress our biology and we cannot transcend our biology. But we can increasingly live fully and fluidly and freely within it. This is the invitation of our practice. So there's about 30 minutes left before supper bell rings to respond to our biological need. An opportunity to sit, reflect, walk, spend a little time just hanging out in whatever's going on in your human biology right there, right now. And then we'll meet together in here at seven after the supper. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.